Praise the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Just the way I showed you how. <laughs> Amen. Turn your Bibles to Micah 6. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. That's in the Old Testament, which is in the Bible. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. That's the version that's on the back of your pews. That's what will also be overhead. Please feel free to uh, use any electronic devices that you might have. Just when you use them, make sure that your slacker radio doesn't go off like mine did one time. I don't want to hear if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie playing like mine did when, I, when it went off. Amen. So, amen. All right, Matthew, uh, Mac, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want to preach to you tonight on the subject, what does God want from me anyhow? What does God want from me anyhow? Let's pray together. Father, in the precious and holy name of your son Jesus, we're asking for the anointing of the Holy Ghost of God, Lord, tonight upon this service. Lord, they don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And Lord, I believe that you're able to work. If not because of me, you can work in spite of me. And I'm asking you to do that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Give the Lord another hand clap of praise. I used to like to watch the old black and white uh, reruns of Perry Mason. Anybody ever watch Perry Mason? In fact, I liked when they came back out in the, in the 80s, late 80s and early 90s and started having those Perry Mason mystery movies. Perry had put on a beard and a few pounds in those interim times. I like to watch those. I even like to watch old Matlock every once in a while. Did, didn't you? Did you ever watch Matlock? And then I, I, liked, I liked to watch Law and Order because Perry Mason and Matlock, they were on the defense. I liked every once in a while for the prosecution to have some good lawyers as well. And so I like to watch Law and Order. Doop, doop. <laughs> right? In fact, Law and Order had a spinoff of two or three shows. And that Law and Order itself, I think, lasted about 20 seasons. In fact, I'm not sure, I don't, don't check me on this, but I think maybe it outlasted Gunsmoke for being the longest-running series. It was on for a long, long time. And I think one of its uh, spinoffs is still on the air. So those kind of procedural dramas, those kind of courtroom dramas. Well, Micah, at the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, paints a picture really in our mind of a courtroom drama that's happening. In this vision, he envisions God as the judge, and indeed, he is the judge, and he will be the judge. And in this, uh, in this vision, you probably could have entitled this sermon, What Happens When God Sues His People? What happens when God sues His people? When God takes His people to court? The first thing that we see in the Scripture is that God reads the indictment against them. He says, hear now, verse 1, what the Lord says, Arise and plead your case before the mountains 
and let the hills hear your voice. And in that, he assembles the jury. Verse 2, hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. It's as if the Lord has assembled the jury of the earth's uh, mountains and the foundations of the earth that had existed uh, since the misty morning of time and had watched and had firsthand knowledge of the sins and the crimes of God's people. So he's assembled the jury against them. And then he reads the charge. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. He is inviting them to mount a defense. He's invited them to plead their cause and testify against the Lord. In fact, here's what the Lord had against them. If you go back to, to all of the book of Micah, there was something going on in the days of Micah. Micah was a very righteous man. He lived during the time of Hezekiah. In fact, the reforms that Hezekiah put in place, Hezekiah was one of the most righteous kings that Judah ever had. And Micah was, was, the, was God's spokesman into Hezekiah's life as well as uh, Isaiah as well. And, and Micah saw what was going on and the Spirit of God saw what was going on and there was a real transition going on in Judah in those days. They were becoming more urbanized. They were leaving the country, excuse me, and moving into the cities and in violation of God's law, People were selling their birthrights. The way God had designed them to inherit the land was you were to hang on to your property and pass it down to your descendants. But some people had decided that money was uh, of greater value than heritage and they were selling out and these large landowners were grabbing up these little farms and they were becoming kind of the robber barons of the Old Testament. You kind of had the the uh, uh, you know the Andrew Carnegie uh, was one of those robber barons and and uh, uh, you had John D Rockefeller. They asked John D Rockefeller how much money it would take for him to be happy. He said one nickel more. They asked one farmer that had bought up a lot of land. Said how much land do you have to have? He said all I want is just that that adjoins mine. That's all I want. And that was kind of the attitude that was going on. And in that they were oppressing the poor. Now, I, I want to say this to you. I am a, a conservative in almost every area of life, and particularly I, I'm a conservative politically. So understand that I am a conservative politically. But I want you to understand something, that sometimes in our conservative viewpoint, we miss just how much God is concerned with the poor. And I realize that there is abuse sometimes, and I realize that sometimes uh, government programs are not the answer. In fact, they contribute to the problem. But I'm going to tell you, if, if we do not have a heart for those that are in need, we can't claim to have the heart of God. God is concerned about the poor and about the needy. So they had oppressed the poor, and in garnering and gaining all of this wealth, they had actually committed perhaps the most grievous of all sins they had become self-sufficient. They had become self-sufficient. They didn't need God. They didn't need God to bless them. They didn't need God to bail them out. They didn't need, because God had blessed them, 
because they had prospered, they leaned upon their wealth and leaned upon their own ingenuity and they didn't realize the sad condition that they were in. They were almost like the church at Laodicea that boasted, I'm, we're rich, we're increased with goods, we have need of nothing. And God said, if you only saw with my mine eyes, if you saw with my eyes, you could see that you are wretched and you're poor and you're naked and you're blind and you're halt and you're, you're lame. You're all of those things that you think you are not. Ezekiel prophesied a little bit after Micah, after they'd already gone in Babylonian captivity. And in 1649 and 50, he expands on the sins of Sodom. Now let me say this to you. There are people out there that will tell you that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. Let me tell you that the Bible teaches that the sin of Sodom did include homosexuality, but it wasn't the only sin of Sodom. In fact, uh, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. He said, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty, that means proud, and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So yes, those sexual abominations were there in Sodom, but he doesn't even mention that till he gets to the last of the list. I think personally, my opinion, this is a progression that their pride manifested itself because they were full of food. They had an abundance of, abundance of idleness. Uh, they were more concerned with recreation and satisfying their own needs and desires. And they did not strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were prideful. And so they, in their pride, they forgot God, committed abominations, and the Lord sent them away. So God states his case against them. And then the Lord calls witnesses. Micah 6, 4, and 5 for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So if this was a courtroom, God says, I'm calling the next witness. And Moses comes up and tells them how that when he was a shepherd on the backside of nowhere, he was back in the Sinai desert, and there he saw a bush that was on fire and was not consumed. And God spoke to him out of the bush and said, the cry of my people Israel has gone up before me. And God heard their cry, and God sent them a deliverer, and God sent plagues upon uh, um, Pharaoh and Egypt, and uh, again, with the Passover, he spared their firstborn. He killed the firstborn of Egypt. And then he led them out by, with a pillar of cloud by a day, a day and a pillar of fire by night. He led them out into the wilderness. When they were surrounded, he parted the Red Sea. They crossed over. Men ate angels' food. Bed baked in heaven. And God sent it down and provided for them. And for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. They were not moth-eaten. Uh, their shoes didn't wear out. They went to sleep every night with the glow of God's presence on the door of their tent and then God led them by Joshua into the promised land and gave them the promises of God and so God calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam as witnesses of the faithfulness of God to his people and then he calls some other ones some what I would call um, hostile witnesses he calls he said, oh, my people, remember how Balak, the king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Bear, answered him. 
from Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. <clears throat> He's talking about that period of time that they were getting ready to go in to the promised land and they had to pass through Moab and Balak, the king of Moab, hired, paid Balaam, who was not a false prophet, he was just a greedy one. He was a legitimate prophet, but he was misusing his anointing, misusing his gift, and he paid him to prophesy evil against the people of God. But every time he opened his mouth to curse the people of God, he ended up blessing them. So he gave advice to Balak. He said, I can't prophesy against them, but I'll tell you what I'll do. If you will give your women to them as wives, then it'll, it'll start that insidious process of idolatry among them and they begin to sin against the Lord and worship false gods. God is making his case against them. And then there, as after God makes this case against them, here is their plea. Micah 6, 6 verse and verse 7. With what shall I come before the Lord, they're saying, and bow myself before high, the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? What shall, I, what shall I do? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now it's hard to know, as Micah is prophesying this, it's hard to know whether he is picturing the people of Judah in sincere repentance, saying, whatever it takes, I want to be right with God. And I want to ask you that. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be right with God? I know some people that will do whatever it takes to get ahead in life. I know some people that will do whatever it takes to get rich. I know people that will do whatever it takes to have friends. I know what some people that will do whatever it takes to be famous. But what I want to ask you, are you willing to do whatever it takes to be right with God? So were they sincere in that or is this even in their condemnation before God, their pride answering? Because what they're doing is they're saying, what can I do to be right with God? Now, I want to say this to you, and we're going to get a little bit more on it later, but let me just preface this and say this to you. When you're in the court of Almighty God, the only thing that works is throwing yourself on the mercy of the court. You can't horse trade with God, Daddy, because you ain't got no horses, right? You can offer all your wealth. You can offer all your riches. You can offer a religious observance. You say, you can get, listen, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings with this, but I don't care if you say 5,000 Hail Marys and 10,000 Our Fathers. You're not going to be able to do anything that's going to be able to amend and appease God for your sin. There's nothing that you can do to make it right with God. In fact, I love that old song. I quote it all the time. love that old song, Rock of Ages, I think it was Isaac Watts that wrote it. He said this, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone in my hand. No price I bring simply to thy cross I cling. You got to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You got to throw yourself on the goodness of God. You can't horse trade with God. I'm not even sure if in their response, there's not a little bit of sarcasm 
You say, how do you know that? Because I'm sarcastic enough to recognize it when I see it. I'm not so sure that there wasn't some snideness in this response. I'm not sure that they didn't say, well, what do you want us to do? We're offering the lambs. We're going to the temple. We're going through the process. We're doing the works. What do you, you want us to increase our sacrifice? You want us to give, you want us to give and instead of one lamb, you want us to give 10,000 lambs? Will that work? What do you want us to do? Do, do you want us to even take our own children and sacrifice them to God? Will that appease God? Maybe this is idol worship that's crept into their mindset or maybe it's just a real sarcastic remark. You want us to give our children? I'm reminded when I was a, a, a young man, there was a gospel group, a Christian group out in California called the Archers. And I remember that they had a song that was a beautiful song. It said, if I had all the riches that this world has to give, all the comfort that it brings, never needing anything, I could search the whole world over far and wide and try to buy that precious love that was sent from God above, but it wouldn't be enough. No, it wouldn't be enough to buy one splinter on the tree that Jesus died on. And I couldn't pay the price for one single drop of blood that was shed for my salvation. In fact, here's what the Bible says. Isaiah prophesied it beautifully. It said, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You can't bargain with God. So God overrules their objection. In Micah 6 and 8, he says, I have shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now God took what the rabbis said were 613 commandments and reduced it down to three. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Jesus did better than that. Jesus reduced it down to two. Love the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these hinge all the law and the prophets. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul reduced it down to one. He said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Does that mean you shouldn't, that it's all right to kill or to steal or commit adultery? No, but if you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. If you love him, you won't kill him. If you love him, you won't run around with his wife, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. So what does God demand of them? Number one, to do justly. To just do the right thing. I'm real big on teachable moments with my children. Real big on that. And uh, I get the opportunity a lot of times with Cameron because Cameron asks a lot of questions. Uh, Katie asks questions. It's what time is dinner. But Cameron, Cameron asks a lot of questions. And, and I was telling him the other day because, listen to what he did. There, I hate to tell you this, please don't think we're filthy, we just live under a lot of pine trees, okay? I saw a roach in our house, and I stepped on the roach, okay? And before I could go and get some toilet tissue and pick it up, Cameron went into the bathroom, got toilet tissue, came and picked it up, and went and threw it away. When I came back, it was gone. 
And I said, Cameron, what you have just shown is initiative. And that's going to set you apart in the workforce. Because you've got some people that are just going to do the bare minimum and they don't care whether the boss is watching or not. They're going to do the bare minimum. Then you've got other people that are going to be, do the bare minimum until the boss is watching and then they're going to put it in high gear. And then you've got other people that are going to give their best whether the boss is watching, watching or not and they're going to do what's required of them. They're going to do their best. And then you've got the highest level. You've got people that are going to do their best, do their job, do what's required and look around for what they can do that's not required. Right? It's called doing the right, right thing. And that led to me telling him about a couple of things that happened when I was working. Now, I had learned long ago that when you tell a story about yourself in the pulpit, you talk about the good things and not the times you blew it. <laughs> but I remember one time I was, I was working uh, at uh, a car dealership and the, the uh, service manager uh, handed me, back then we didn't have computers, we did it the old-fashioned way. I think we had a, a chisel and a hammer and a slab of rock, but we, we, we were writing it up, and, and he said, now look, I want you to change the mileage and maybe the date on this because they're out from under warranty, but I want it to send this through warranty, so I want you to change that, and I took it from him, and I went by, and my conscience began to bother me because that could be considered warranty fraud because that's warranty fraud. And, and so... Now, he was doing it trying to help the customer, but I went back and I sat down and I looked at it and I said, I didn't think I could do that. So I went back in and closed the door. I said, look, I'm not trying to, to pass judgment on you or anybody else that works here, but I don't think I can do that. I don't, I don't think I'm able to do that. And so I handed it back to him, and I don't know whether this was genuine or just something to say, but this is what he said to me. He said, that's all right. I just asked you to see what you would do. Do justly just means to do the right thing, to treat people right. There was a, a doctor that was at a cocktail party with a, and standing there with a lawyer friend. And, the, and a woman came up to the doctor. I did this same thing. I, I caught my, my doctor, Justin Harrell, one day. I saw him in, in uh, uh, it was Jerry J's at that time. And I, I said to him, I said, Doc, if somebody came up while I was in here eating breakfast and wanted to get saved, do you think I ought to share the gospel with them? He said, absolutely. I said, I'm glad to hear that. I got this pain right here. <laughs> and so this doctor was talking to his lawyer friend and a woman came up to him and said, Doc, I just got this, this pain right here in my neck. And the doctor said, yeah, I know how you feel. And he said, I got this pain here. Can you tell me what to do? And he kind of looked at it and he just gave her some advice. And when she walked off, he looked at his lawyer friend. He said, tell me something. Is there a way legally that I can charge her for medical advice when she approaches me at a party? And the lawyer said, absolutely. And in about three days, the doctor got a bill from that lawyer charging him $500 for free legal advice. That sounds like a Billy Wilson joke, don't it? It's doing the right thing. A few years ago, that there was bracelets and T-shirts that came out with WWJD. Everybody say what that means. What would Jesus do? Now, that did, listen, that didn't start just back 
about 15 or 20 years ago. That's actually from an old, old book called In His Steps where a church decided through a series of events, they decided that they would live that and try to do what Jesus did. I'm going to tell you, you can do anything you want to do if you're doing what Jesus did, right? It's just treating people right. That's not always going to turn out to your benefit. There was a, a little girl that saw a bee that was drowning and swimming around, buzzing around in, the, in their pool. And she reached down and she got the bee and she took some toilet tissue and she sponged the bee off and then she held her hand out and the, ble- the bee flew away and buzzed away. And so about three or four days later, her mama was walking out in the backyard and she saw in that same pool, she saw another little bee that was struggling to live and struggling to get out and she was inspired by her little girl. So she reached down and she picked that little bee up and she sponged, gently sponged the water off of him and then the bee stung her and flew away. <laughs> Sometimes doing the right thing is not going to benefit you immediately, but in the long run, you're going to be better off. Sometimes doing the right thing, you're going to be on the losing end between you and a man, but I'm going to tell you, when you stand before God, you want to do the right thing. I would, I would hate to get up before the Lord and him say, you know what, I'll let you in if you'll pay that money you owed that you never did pay back. Doing the right thing, do justly. And then he said, and love mercy. Love mercy. There's something in all of us that we want to get back. When we are reviled, we want to revile again. When we're slapped on one side of the cheek, we want to slap somebody else on the other side of the cheek. We, we, we want, there's something in us that wants to get back. There were some bikers that came in one day and they saw a little skinny guy sitting up at the counter at the diner and they, they came and they pulled his ears and they, they you know, they kind of took and wrung his nose a little bit and they messed up his hair. They were just making they were just making hay out of him. And finally, he just got up, put his money on the table, and slinked with his head down, slinked out of the, out of the diner. And the old biker, one of the, the, the guy that was kind of their leader, he looked at the waitress and he said, ha, 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 he ain't much of a man, is he? She looked out the window. She said, no, and he ain't much of a driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles out there. Right, there's something in us that wants to give back, but the Bible says, God said, what I require of you is for you to love mercy. I've said this to you before, and I'll say an abbreviated part tonight because I don't want to repeat myself over and over again, but it's, it's just so rich, I can't help but to mention it, that whenever uh, there was a, a rich young ruler that asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And what does the law say? And Jesus said, well, how do you read it? He said, love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And then the Bible says that that lawyer wanting to justify himself said, well, who is my neighbor? Because in the Hebrew mindset, they believed in a word called hesed, which is usually translated mercy or loving kindness. And that's what this word that's what God said they should love, love Hesed. But in the Jewish mindset, it was thought of as covenant obligation. It's what I owe to my neighbor, what I owe to my wife, what I owe to my parents, even what I owe to God. 
And they also got that twisted around and they thought God's blessings were something God owed to them because they were the covenant people of God. They thought it was due them because they were the descendants of Abraham. And so uh, Hesed was what was owed. So if he had said, well, everybody that's within a 10-mile radius of your house is your neighbor, that man in his legalistic mindset would have worked himself to death, gave his last dollar to help his neighbor. But if you have the misfortune of living 10.1 miles radius around his house, you were slapped out of luck because you were not his neighbor. And that's where Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan that came by and saw a man and I love that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of that story. He knew what he was doing. Jesus, listen, Jesus never sinned, but he sure liked to gig at religious people. That was his favorite pastime. Just stick it in and turn the knife. He liked, that, he liked poking that old self-righteous attitude. He said, yeah, it was a Samaritan that came by. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. They went on their merry way, but it was the Samaritan that came by and picked him up and put him on his own donkey and poured in the oil and the wine and took him to the inn and paid his bill and said, if you owe you anything more, you pay, you do it. I'll, I'll pay you when I get back. And then he asked, now, which one of these do you think was a neighbor to this man? And, and he said, I guess it's the one that showed him mercy. And here's what Jesus showed. He showed the principle that, that mercy was not based on covenant, but covenant was based on mercy. That we were strangers and foreigners outside the household, the family of God. And while we were yet sinners, while we were outside the covenant, God loved us so much that he demonstrated his love to us in giving his own son and God brought us into the covenant. He did not love us because we were in covenant. He gave us the covenant because he loved us. He did not love us because we were saved. He saved us because he loved us. God does not love you based on Calvary. Calvary's based on the fact that God loves you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have ever everlasting life and Jesus said this is what or God said the judge said that if you want to please me you got to love mercy that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees Matthew 9 and 11 Jesus was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and they mumbled against him and he said look the well don't need a physician those that are sick need it and he says, but you need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those people of Judah standing before God, trying to horse trade with God. We'll give rivers of oil. We'll give thousands of rams. And God says, no, I want you to do what's right, and I want you to be merciful. That's what I'm looking for. And then lastly, he said, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. I had a friend of mine that I grew up going to church camp with, and she called me one day, and she said, Britt, I'm so proud of myself, the Lord has just humbled me down. <laughs> Listen, humility is the one Christian virtue 
that you'll never boast of having. The moment that you think that you're humble, you're not. I have known some people that have talked about publicly and asked, oh, I need the Lord to humble me. And they were already the most humble people that I knew. To walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 16, 18 said, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Did you know 63% of people that trip or stumble on stairs stumble going up the stairs and not down the stairs? When you're on the rise, it's very easy for you to get your eyes off and for you to walk in pride and haughtiness. Bobby Leach was the second person in 1911. Bobby Leach was the second person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. He was the first man, the first person to do it was a lady. But he went over the falls. He lived to tell about it, broke both kneecaps. He was in the hospital about six months, but he lived to tell about it. But he was able to par that, parlay that into some fame and fortune. In fact, out of the next 15 years, he was able to travel and let people meet the daredevil that went over the falls in a barrel. He was able to open some restaurants and some, a pool hall and those kinds of things. But 15 years later, he was on a tour of New Zealand. There because he was the man that had went over Niagara Falls in a barrel. And he slipped on an orange peel and broke his leg. And gangrene set up in that leg and they had to amputate the leg and despite that, he died two days later. Slipping on orange peel. Pride goes before the fall. Something happened recently with our president and let me say that I support a lot of his policies. But there was something that happened that, that gave me the, just the cold sweats. Let me read this to you about pride out of the New Testament and then I'll tell you about it. This is in Acts 12, 22, 23. The people of Tyre and Sidon came because they were angry because Herod Agrippa, the king, was angry with them and they came to him. A party came to him and when uh, Herod on that appointed day stood up, put on his royal robes and he took his seat on the platform and he delivered a public address to them and the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately because he had not given glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now recently there was a a commentator named William Allen Root that President Trump texted about and he, this is what he quoted Root as saying, President Trump is the greatest president for the Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America. He's the best president for Israel, uh, Israel in the history of the world and the Jewish people in Israel love him like he's the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God. Trump quoted Root as saying. You know what Trump's response to that was? Thank you for your kind words. 
Now, I know that the Democrats have been trying to impeach him since he, before he got into office. I know that. I know all about it. I watch Fox News, too. I've heard Hannity talk about it, too. I know, you, you, I know all about it. But, but I just wonder if the hot water he's in right now might have been avoided if he had not accepted that kind of blasphemous praise. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care if it's a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care if it's a conservative or liberal. I don't care if it's a capitalist or a socialist. When a man allows somebody else to say they think about him like he's a God and doesn't say, wait a second, I can't take that and accept that. There's a God that I bow to and believe in. That pride goes before a fall. Amen? Well, listen, James 4, 6 through 10, I'm trying to hurry. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5 and 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. We're to walk humbly, and we're not just to walk humbly, but we're to walk humbly with God. We used to sing a song, Hand in hand we walk each day. Hand in hand along the way. Walking thus I cannot stray. Hand in hand with Jesus. People like those in Judah want to make a relationship with God. Religious people love to do this. They want to make it complicated. They want to make it complex. Religious people kind of get their kicks saying, I know something you don't know. I know the secret. I know the mystery revealed. I know things that you don't know. If you can pray this kind of way, if you can believe this kind of way, if you can give this kind of way, and it's so evident when we're dealing with the cults, we can see it. It's so evident when you see some shyster preacher on TV, you can see it. But what about us that says, well, you know, there are people that out there, if you wear this or you don't wear that or if you go here, or you don't go there, if you keep this rule, if you keep that rule, if you do good works, if you abstain from bad works, if you watch this show, you don't watch that show, you go to this place, or you don't go to that place, touch not, taste not, handle not, which the Bible says all perish with the using. People want to make it complicated. And God said it's simple. Do justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. Now that's simple. But that doesn't mean it's not difficult. The way of salvation is not complex. It's simple. But that doesn't mean it's not difficult. If out in your yard you had a boulder that weighed several tons 
and you hired somebody and you said, I've got a simple job for you. I want you to move that boulder. That's as simple and direct as a, of, of an instruction as you could get. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy to move that boulder. That boulder. The fact that something is simple does not mean that it's not difficult. And I'm going to tell you this great command, the simplicity of do right, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. Listen to me. It is not simply difficult. It is impossible. It's impossible for you to do that in your own strength. I won't read it to you for the sake of time, but Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26, Jesus said this. He said, it's easier for a camel to enter in through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now, I've heard it preached. I've read the commentaries. It's a beautiful thought that says, well, that's talking about the, the camel's, uh, the needle's eye gate, where if a camel needed to go through the needle eye gate, he had to get down on his knees and humble himself, and he had to strip, they had to strip the camel of all the things on his back, but he could squeeze in, and that's a beautiful story. The problem is that's not what this story is saying. It didn't say it's difficult. It says it's impossible. They said, what you're talking about is impossible. And here's what Jesus said. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now look, like those of Judah, we all have a court date ahead of us. In fact, here's what 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. There's an old song that talks about that court date standing before the bar. It says, Oh, my record will be there. Be its pages bright, dark, or fair. When I stand before the judgment bar, when the book's shall open lie in that morning by and by. Oh, my record. Yes, my record will be there. It's a young man that was fishing one day. Kind of like down in the Satilla River, down in Waycross. The current's so strong, you almost lost your life there one day. Just whirlpools would go, just whirling he fell in the river, and there was a man that was fishing that saw it. He jumped in, and he dragged that young boy to safety. The years went by, and that young boy turned to a life of crime. He was arrested, and he was arraigned, and when he was taken before the judge, he was so relieved to look up and see sitting on the other side of that bar in a black robe, the man that had rescued him all those years before. And he knew, he just knew he had it made until the, the gavel swung down and he was sentenced to prison for his crimes. He got loose from the bailiff and ran up and clutched 
lifted up his hands and clutched the edge of that judgment bar. And he said, I don't understand. You're the one that saved me. And the judge said, son, on that day, I was your savior. But today, I'm your judge. I know there's this myth around there that says God the Father is going to judge us and that Jesus is the one that's going to stand in the way. And, but here's what the Bible says, that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Right now, he's functioning as Savior. But one day, he's going to be the judge. Boy, that is a solemn, solemn thought. Well, I left out one thing, and with this we close. In a courtroom, with all of that drama going on, when it's time for the defense attorney to question the witnesses, he does what is called a cross-examination. If you want to be innocent in the courtroom of heaven, what you need is a cross-examination. When the Lord examines your life, you say, I've been to the cross. And Jesus bore my sin and my guilt. And God's going to say, justified. Don't we have a wonderful Savior? Would you stand across this building tonight? Let's pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, and Christians are praying. Father, in Jesus' name, oh God, we need you now. Oh God, we, we want to fulfill your commands. We want to do justly. We want to love mercy. We want to walk humbly with you. But God, we're incapable of doing that unless you are helping us, changing us, living in us, living through us. Lord, that's what we ask you for. If there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you, I'm praying, God, that they'd come to the cross. That they'd come to the cross and receive your forgiveness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're saved and you know it as nobody's looking around, lift your hand and say, thank God I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Praise God. Praise God. Now, as nobody's looking around and if you, if you are in attendance tonight, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, would you be honest enough and lift your hand and say, Brother, pray for me. I don't know the Lord. I don't know the Lord. Oh, I look at it. A song that Crystal and I have sung for last 20 years probably used to sing it started singing it by the accident is a song that was taken from the words of David search me O God and know my heart try me see if there be any wicked way in me scrub my heart cleanse my heart lead me in the way everlasting I'm glad I don't have to wait till I stand before him to have him examine me. I'm glad I can come to him right now and say, Lord, if, if there's any way in my life I'm not doing justly,
God, change me. Forgive me. Help me. If I'm not loving mercy, help me, oh God. Love through me, dear Lord. If I'm not walking humbly, dear God, don't, don't let it take a fall to humble me. Oh God, I'll humble myself under your mighty hand. I want to walk with you every day. If that's your desire, lift your hand to the Lord. Amen. Would you come from across this building and let's seek the Lord together tonight. Come on, let's pray together.